Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 26th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. NASA launches a UFO study. A Myanmar airstrike kills at least 80. Democrats press Biden to engage with Russia. DeSantis and Christ have a heated Florida gubernatorial debate. Obama endorses Beasley for the North Carolina Senate. And Arizona County approves a hand recount. The United States charges 13 for alleged Chinese influence operations. Six Palestinians are killed in the West Bank. Amnesty urges an ICC probe of possible Gaza war crimes. And China's overseas power plants reportedly produce significant CO2. In our top story, NASA launches a UFO study. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ZDNet, Reuters, CBS, and CNN. On Monday, NASA launched a nine-month study of Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, commonly known as UFOs, led by 16 of the world's leading scientists, data and artificial intelligence practitioners, and aerospace safety experts. The panel, chaired by astrophysicist David Spurgel, includes former NASA astronaut Scott Kelly, biological oceanographer Paula Bontempi, and astrophysicist Shelley Wright. NASA said the study would focus on unclassified data from civilian government entities and other sources to potentially be analyzed to shed light on UAPs and advance how the agency uses UAP data analysis in the future. NASA has previously said that UAPs, which have been reported flying through restricted military space over the past few decades, are important to study from a security perspective and that there's no evidence that the objects are extraterrestrial. Testifying before Congress five months ago, senior defense and intelligence officials said the list of UAP sightings had grown to 400, including Pentagon footage of mysterious airborne objects flying at speeds with a maneuverability beyond known aviation technology. The group is expected to issue an unclassified report by mid-2023 and hold a publicly broadcasted meeting by late spring 2023. Okay, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. And now for some narrative spins on this interesting story. Narrative A comes from KSL.com. NASA was created to uncover the previously unknown. And this team of researchers is the next step in a long history of world-changing explorations. Beyond the exciting potential for extraterrestrial findings, the national security implications are severe, given the possibility of these UFOs being foreign military aircraft. And Narrative B is being provided by Scientific American. While it's nice to see NASA providing researchers interested in UFOs as a legitimate platform, NASA isn't actually looking for anything special as evident from its exclusion of classified data. The small budget, mixed with the limited amount of material to study, shows this is NASA simply throwing a bone at the recently intrigued public. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. There's one on this story, and it says that there's a 7% chance that alien techno-signatures will be detected before the year 2050. When this uh, panel of experts met for the first time, if there was a big bowl of Reese's Pieces in the middle of the table. Most likely. You know, those were supposed to be M&Ms, and the Mars company said they didn't want to do it, so they went to Reese's and uh, E.T. That uh, was kind of a huge marketing blunder. Look what happened. I know. I'm still well, a huge fan of Reese's Pieces. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. And our next story comes back down to earth as tragedy strikes in Myanmar as the death toll from an airstrike in Kachin hits 80. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Newsbud, The Star, BBC News, and Mizima. New reports have put a death toll from a military air raid in Myanmar's northern Kashin state at 80, with around 100 wounded. According to Colonel Nabu of the Kashin Independence Army, or KIA, two Myanmar military jets attacked a celebratory event held by the prominent ethnic rebel group on Sunday night. Rebel ethnic minority resistance has increased since the military coup last year, with this attack reportedly targeting a concert celebration of the 62nd anniversary of the formation of the Kachin Army's fight for autonomy. It appears to be the worst air raid since Myanmar's military seized power. Among the dead are believed to be four popular Kashin singers, with eyewitnesses saying the Myanmar military blocked medics trying to move the injured to a nearby town. Witnesses in the northern Myanmar state say aircraft dropped multiple bombs that ripped apart the cluster of buildings at the KIA Army base and caused heavy casualties in the audience. The part of Kashin where they dropped the bombs has been tightly contested for many years by the military and Kashin insurgents due to its jade mines, believed to be worth roughly $30 billion per year. This comes just days before scheduled emergency talks between Southeast Asian foreign ministers to examine the situation in Myanmar ahead of November's Association of Southeast Asian Nations Leaders Summit. Scott, thank you for the facts. Two spins emerging from this story. Narrative A is the first one coming from Guardian. This attack is but the latest in a series of indiscriminate bombings against civilian populations and more evidence of the government's complete disregard for human lives and international law. The perpetrators must be held to account. And we have Narrative B from Manila Times. While the loss of lives is tragic, KIA has been engaged in militant operations against the Myanmar government for decades and carried out countless terrorist attacks. Sunday's operation, inflated by the media, was a necessary step to counter one of the most potent and dangerous rebel groups. Turning our attention to day 244 of the Ukraine conflict, the UN watchdog to visit sites amid dirty bombs claims and Democrats press Biden to engage with Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by RTE, Guardian, ABC, Newsbud, Pravda, and Ukraine Forum. Amid Russian allegations that it has evidence that Ukraine is preparing to use a dirty bomb, which it presented to a closed-door meeting of the UN Security Council on Tuesday, the UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, said it would send inspectors to two locations in Ukraine at Kyiv's request. According to Russian news outlet RIA Novosti, Moscow's allegations center around two locations, the Eastern Mineral Enrichment Plant in the central Dnipropetrovsk region and the Institute for Nuclear Research in Kyiv. The IAEA didn't specify which sites it would visit. Meanwhile, a group of 30 congressional Democrats from the Progressive Caucus released a letter on Monday urging U.S. President Biden to directly engage with Russia to end the conflict while maintaining its funding commitments to Ukraine. Led by Pramila Jayapal, Democrat Washington, the letter stated America's funding for Ukraine creates a responsibility to seek a diplomatic solution. This was retracted, however, on Tuesday following a backlash. Elsewhere, as German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier made his first visit to Ukraine since the beginning of the war, 
Berlin hosted European Union leaders who announced a new Marshall Plan to rebuild Ukraine, referring to the U.S.-sponsored initiative to revive Western Europe following World War II. On the ground, suspected saboteurs detonated several explosions in the Russian-held region of Melitopol on Tuesday, including a car bomb near the offices of a TV station and Russia's security services, the FSB. At least five people were injured, according to Russian-appointed officials in the region. An explosion was also reported in Russian territory on a railway track in the Bryansk region on Tuesday. The track was reportedly used to transport military equipment between Russia and Belarus. Meanwhile, Russian attacks continue to be reported in the regions of Sumy, Dnipropetrovsk, and Donetsk, where seven civilians were reported killed during the past day. Ukrainian officials said the bodies of three additional civilians were discovered in the newly recaptured territory in the region. While the violence drags on in Ukraine, and so too do the narrative spins, let's start with the pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. Russia's allegations of a so-called dirty bomb are transparently false. This is a ploy being utilized by the Kremlin to justify a drastic escalation of the war. TASS gives us a pro-Russia narrative. Russia has collected evidence to back up its claims, and it's prepared to provide this to Western countries. These allegations should be taken seriously. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus that states that there is a 5% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before the year 2023. That's according to the Metaculus prediction community. And now beginning our roundup of stories coming out of the U.S. midterm elections, DeSantis and Christ face off in a heated debate. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, The New York Times, CBS, Business Insider, and The Daily Wire. Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican of Florida, and his Democratic challenger, former Representative Charlie Crist, debated topics including abortion, Hurricane Ian, so-called culture wars, and DeSantis's future political ambitions on Monday in their only public debate to date. The economy and rising inflation were also major points of contention between the two candidates, with DeSantis saying that President Joe Biden and the Democrats were the main cause of economic stress. Christ repeatedly suggested that DeSantis was more interested in running for president in 2024 than governing Florida, asking DeSantis multiple times if he would run for president, to which DeSantis did not reply. The moderator noted that the candidates had agreed not to ask each other questions. Regarding immigration, Christ criticized DeSantis' decision to send migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, though he conceded that there was a problem at the southern border. In response, DeSantis argued that the spike in migration to the U.S. was a result of the policies Crist supported in Congress. Overall, Crist attempted to paint himself as a unifier, while portraying DeSantis as a divisive politician in line with former President Donald Trump. In turn, DeSantis portrayed Crist's policies as being no different than Biden's, who he blamed for many of the country's current problems. DeSantis has raised more money for his political campaign than any other governor in U.S. history. Scott, thank you for the facts. We do have several spins that have emerged, beginning with a Republican narrative coming from Daily Wire. It's obvious that Ron DeSantis dominated the debate against Charlie Crist, who could hardly keep up with DeSantis's charismatic style. Crist is having such a hard time raising money for his campaign that he solicited donations from the victims of Hurricane Ian. Simply put, Crist is not a leader, and given DeSantis's comfortable lead in both fundraising and polling, he will likely win an easy victory. Counter that with this Democratic narrative spin from the Daily Kos. 
Though the odds that Crist will win are slim, he put on a good performance during the debate and rightfully portrayed DeSantis as a Trumpish Republican who is more interested in theatrics and potentially running for president than he is in governing Florida. DeSantis, much like his idol, former President Trump, has consistently compromised the lives of millions of Floridians for his cruel political stunts. And we do have a cynical narrative coming from NBC. This debate was an unfortunate reminder of how ugly the U.S.'s political culture has become. DeSantis and Crist traded insults, pre-cooked one-liners, and talking points as each side's supporters in the audience awkwardly howled in derision of the other candidate and approval of their own. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 93% chance that Ron DeSantis will be re-elected as governor of Florida in 2022. How dare they pre-cook their one-liners? I would never, ever, ever Absol- do that. I would never absolutely pre-cook. Not. No, you, I, we're above that. No, never. Absolutely. You cook them right there on the spot. You don't bring them pre-cooked. <laughs> and more political news as Obama endorses North Carolina Senate candidate Beasley. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Yahoo, New York Magazine, and Town Hall. In a new campaign ad that began airing on Tuesday, former President Barack Obama endorsed Democrat U.S. Senate candidate Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, a state he won in a close vote in 2008. Beasley is in a tight race against Republican candidate Ted Budd to replace retiring Republican Senator Richard Burr. Budd, endorsed by Donald Trump, has highlighted his ties to the former president on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, Beasley's campaign is airing the Obama ad as part of a concerted effort to mobilize black voters, which includes church visits and gatherings with members of historically black fraternities and sororities. In the ad, Obama lauds Beasley, the former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, for her work ethic, her honesty, and how she, quote, always puts people first. He adds, quote, this is going to be a close race and we can't afford to get it wrong. With Republicans forecast to make gains or take over control of the U.S. House, Democrats are looking at the North Carolina Senate race as a vital seat to flip to maintain control of the evenly split chamber. As early in-person voting began in North Carolina last week, polls showed Bud with a slight lead on Beasley. New York Magazine brings us a Democratic narrative spin on this story. It's essential to boost Beasley's candidacy, not just because her winning would help Democrats maintain control of the Senate, but also because she would be the first black senator ever elected in a state where 22% of the population is black. With an impeccable resume and a record as a judge devoted to the rule of law, Beasley is proving to be the ideal candidate. And Town Hall gives us a Republican narrative. With an approaching red wave rebound, Republicans are looking more and more likely to win majorities in both chambers of Congress this fall. Democrats' hyper-focus on abortion at a time when the economy and inflation dominate voters' concerns will cost candidates like Beasley, who might have had a shot with the right strategy. Metaculus is at it again with another nerd narrative. This time they say there's a 47% chance Republicans will control the U.S. Senate after the 2022 elections. And yet another story out of the U.S. midterms, as an Arizona county approves a hand recount. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Fox 10 Phoenix, U.S. News & World Report, the Associated Press, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The Cochise County, Arizona Board of Supervisors voted 2 to 1 on Monday in favor of a hand count audit in all precincts for the November 8th midterm elections. The vote came after two Republican supervisors previously voted against it, before facing pressure from GOP voters to reverse course. 
The lone Democrat on the board, Chairwoman Ann English, voted against both proposals, arguing the county's insurance wouldn't protect them from expected lawsuits. The county's attorney, Brian McIntyre, said supervisors could be held personally liable in a civil action, with the hand count potentially being found unlawful. The first proposal that was rejected said volunteers are wishing to take part in this way to help people who have lost trust in elections, with the approved proposal simply calling for an audit by hand count to assure agreement with the machine count. Under state law, a small percentage of ballots in selected races already go through a mandatory hand count with bipartisan teams. Some officials believe a wider hand count could lead to the results being leaked before they are legally posted. During Tuesday's meeting, both sides of the proposal voiced their opinions, with those against it saying it risks instilling chaos and confusion and will waste taxpayer resources. Proponents expressed support for a hand count of 100% of all cast ballots. Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, a Democrat, also running for governor, said that if the county goes ahead with the hand count, the secretary will take all available legal action to ensure that Cochise County conducts the 2022 general election in compliance with Arizona law. Those were the facts, and we do have some spins, beginning with the Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. Those who are skeptical of machine-counted ballots are simply victims of Donald Trump's baseless election lies. Experts and ballot counters alike will tell you that hand counts, except in the smallest jurisdictions, are not only more labor-intensive, but also inaccurate during recounts. If Americans want to ensure election integrity, machine counts are the way to go. And there's a Republican narrative from Town Hall. The idea that establishment politicians in Arizona should be in charge of ballot-counting decisions is lunacy. For example, Katie Hobbs' office just sent out 6,000 erroneous ballots. So how can voters trust her judgment on how recounts are conducted? The voters in Cochise County support hand-tabulated recounts, and that's what they deserve. According to the nerds, there is a 29% chance that any state will refuse to certify its election results during the 2024 U.S. presidential election, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, the United States charges 13 on alleged People's Republic of China influence operations. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes. NPR Online News, Guardian, CBS, and Fox News. On Monday, the U.S. Department of Justice and FBI announced charges against 13 people allegedly involved in attempts by the Chinese government to influence U.S. operations as part of three separate cases. Two of the cases were filed in federal court in the Eastern District of New York, where in one instance, two suspected Chinese spies were charged with trying to obstruct a federal investigation into an unnamed China-based global telecommunications company speculated to be Huawei. The indictment states that Guashun He and Jing Wang tried to steal the prosecution's strategy documentation, witness lists, and other evidence from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York. Beginning in 2019, both defendants allegedly paid $61,000 worth of Bitcoin to a double agent working for the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland stated that the Chinese government, quote, sought to interfere with the rights and freedoms of individuals in the United States and to undermine our judicial system. In a second of the three cases, three Chinese intelligence officers and another individual were charged for allegedly conspiring to act in the U.S. as illegal agents for a foreign government between 2008 and 2018. The third involved an alleged scheme to pressure a Chinese national 
in the U.S. to return to China. You're not going to believe it, Eric, but there's some diametrically opposed political narratives on this story. We've got an anti-China narrative coming from Washington Examiner. The DOJ took a bold step to crack down on Chinese influence in America. While some of the allegations sound like gaffes and missteps on the part of the PRC, the reality is deadly serious and the Biden administration must go further to deter China's aggressive misconduct in the U.S. And Global Times is giving us a pro-China narrative. Washington's China policy is hypocritical, dangerous, and full of falsehoods. China does not spy, hack, steal information, or even attempt to take advantage of the U.S. The U.S. has created this narrative to protect its interests, attempting to preserve its international hegemony. Metaculus is here once again with a nerd narrative, this time saying there's a 20% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. Six Palestinians are killed and nearly 20 wounded in the West Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Times of Israel, Haaretz, CNN, and Gulf News. Israeli raids in the West Bank led to the death of six Palestinians and nearly 20 wounded on Tuesday as the city of Nablus has become a focal point of clashes between Palestinian fighters and Israeli forces. Israeli security forces said the Nablus raid targeted a hideout that was being used as a headquarters and explosives manufacturing site by the Lion's Den, a recently formed Palestinian armed faction that is said to have carried out several attacks on Israeli troops in recent months. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid stated that Wadi Ahu, a leader of the Lion's Den, was killed in Nablus. Later statements reported that two other Palestinians were killed there and another Palestinian was killed in Ramallah. Palestinian outlets reported that Israeli forces raided neighborhoods in Nablus, where the sounds of shooting and explosions were heard and columns of smoke and flames were seen emanating from several neighborhoods, followed by fierce clashes. Nabil Abu Dineh, a spokesman for the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, described the ongoing Israeli raids as a war crime. The Israeli raids in Nablus were also condemned by the head of the hardline Arab-Israeli Balad party. According to the UN, more than 100 Palestinian fighters and civilians have been killed since the start of 2022, the heaviest death toll in the West Bank for almost seven years. This year has also seen a string of attacks in Israel. Scott, thank you for the facts, and three different spins have been extracted from this story. And we start with a pro-Israel narrative coming from Times of Israel. The so-called Lion's Den is just another terrorist organization that Israel must neutralize. Though the media may portray the violence in the West Bank as Israeli aggression, in reality, Israel's raids are a response to the string of terror operations that have plagued Israeli society since earlier this year. Israel must fight terror in the West Bank to prevent spillover into Israel. Al Jazeera brings us the pro-Palestine narrative. Though Israel portrays its actions as defensive, its occupation forces are launching a deadly campaign against Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank. Nablus has been under siege for more than two weeks as settlers backed by the Israeli military attack Palestinian civilians just for existing on their land. Palestinians, including the lion's den, have a right to resist this brutal occupation. And we've got Narrative C being provided by Crisis Group. The situation in the West Bank is spiraling out of control, and the possibility of a third intifada continues to grow. Palestinians have lost all hope in their largely corrupt and subservient leadership, making violence all the more likely. For its part, the Palestinian Authority is between a rock and a hard place. 
as it cannot directly intervene without destroying its already damaged reputation among the Palestinians. And once again, we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 44% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine before the year 2070. In our next story, Amnesty urges the International Criminal Court probe of possible Gaza war crimes. And here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Amnesty, Al-Arabia, Jewish News, Middle East Eye, and Al-Monitor. On Tuesday, Amnesty International called for an International Criminal Court, or ICC, probe into possible war crimes committed by both Israeli forces and Palestinian militants during deadly three-day fighting in Gaza in August. This comes as the organization presented a new report focusing on three specific attacks that it says killed 13 Palestinian civilians amid what it detailed as Israel's preemptive military offensive against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group in Gaza starting on August 5th. According to the London-based Global Rights Group, the 13 casualties included five Palestinian children killed at a cemetery in an attack, quote, likely to have been carried out by an Israeli-guided missile fired by a drone and another Palestinian civilian killed after an Israeli tank fired at a house in Khan Yunis. The NGO has also claimed that among the 13 deaths, seven Palestinian civilians were killed in an attack on the Jabalia refugee camp on August 6th, which it says was the result of a misfired rocket launched by Palestinian armed groups. Amnesty has reportedly based its findings on photographs of weapons fragments, satellite imagery, and testimonies that allegedly amount to evidence of war crimes in these three separate attacks. The ICC has already opened an investigation into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to focus on possible war crimes committed during the 2014 conflict in Gaza. While the Palestinian Authority supports this probe, Israel isn't an ICC member and disputes its jurisdiction. Fiercely opposing narratives on this story as well, the pro-Palestine narrative comes from Al Jazeera. These unlawful attacks come as a consequence of continuous Israeli violence and oppression against the population of Gaza, which has been besieged for years. However, the ICC must investigate not only the war crimes in Gaza, but also the crime against humanity of apartheid occurring in the occupied Palestinian territories in general. And the Jerusalem Post gives us a pro-Israel spin. While Amnesty International has finally deemed an attack by a Palestinian terror group a war crime, Accusing Israel at an unparalleled level reveals that the organization isn't acting impartially. Aside from its fixation with Israel, Amnesty also seems to have double standards. It seriously criticizes Ukraine for failing to protect its citizens, but virtually ignores Palestine for the same violations. Our final story, significant CO2 is produced by China's overseas power plants. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Economic Times, Al Jazeera, and China Dialogue. Research published Tuesday from Boston University's Global Development Policy Center, or GDPC, showed carbon dioxide emissions from China-invested power plants overseas now stand at an estimated 245 million tons per year, approximately the annual energy-related CO2 emissions of Thailand or Spain. The research findings indicated that Chinese companies and government-run investment banks have financed nearly 172 gigawatts of overseas power generation capacity across 648 power plants in 92 nations. About 50% of this total is fossil fuel-related, and future projects could add another 100 million tons of annual CO2 emissions if completed. 
This suggests that China can do more to advocate for low-carbon energy solutions in developing countries. Last year, President Xi Jinping told the UN that China would stop investing in overseas coal-fired power plants, involving about $50 billion in investment, with a commitment to cancel multiple overseas projects. However, some have remained in a so-called gray area and could still go ahead. Along with being the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, China is the largest consumer of coal in the world. The report states that the majority of the China-financed overseas power generation projects in the planning stage will utilize low-carbon energy sources. This suggests that Beijing's recent pledge to end overseas coal financing is having an impact. Scott, thank you for the facts. And we do have three spins that have emerged, beginning with a pro-China narrative coming from China Dialogue. China is a world leader in the renewable energy sector and can build on its leadership by providing technical support and capacity building for developing nations. With its fully renewable energy industrial chain, including manufacturing, installation, operation, and maintenance capability, China has and will continue to promote green tech in developing nations. BBC News brings us the anti-China narrative. China became the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide in 2006 and is now responsible for more than 25% of the world's overall greenhouse gas emissions. Without big reductions in the PRC's emissions, the world cannot win the fight against climate change. And Beijing has not clearly stated how it will achieve these goals. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative. And it says there's a 25% chance China will be the first country to develop practical nuclear fusion, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.